We'll come to Isaiah and chapter 4 this evening and looking together particularly at the description of Jesus in verse number 2, the branch of the Lord. Thinking this evening then of this further portrait of Jesus in Isaiah chapters 1 to 39 of the fruitful branch. Now branches perhaps have featured in your life in various ways. Perhaps you recall driving along a road on a dark, windy, stormy country evening, uh, winter evening, and a branch lying there before you. Perhaps you have spent a Saturday afternoons at your grandparents uh, sawing up pieces of branch to provide firewood for them over the winter time. Or perhaps it was a more joyful experience of encountering a branch that you've climbed on, that you've provided a, a seat to swing on in the warm summer evenings. We have all encountered tree branches in different ways and scenarios in our lives. And this is the metaphor being used, the portrait of Jesus that we find in this part of Isaiah, the branch of the Lord. It comes in this opening section of the book of Isaiah, covering chapters 1 to 5. Chapters of judgment against Judah. 1 verse 1 says, Isaiah's prophecy in this part concerns Judah and Jerusalem for their sins. He has mentioned their wrongdoing, their sins in general terms. In chapter 1 verse 5 and 6 he writes, The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot, even to the head, there is no soundness in it, but bruises and sores and raw wounds. And within our Calvinistic theology, this is a verse which we draw the doctrine of total depravity from. That from the sole of the head, to sole of the foot to the crown of the head, there is no soundness in it. Isaiah also lists specific sins. Chapter 1, verse 23, he writes, Your princes are rebels and companions of thieves. Everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts. They do not bring justice to the fatherless, and the widow's cause does not come to them. And in verse 8 of chapter 2, he writes, Their land is filled with idols. They bow down to the work of their hands to what their own fingers have made. And so theft, bribery, injustice, exploitation of the vulnerable are some of the the dominant sinful practices in the Old Testament church at this time of Isaiah's prophecy. And consequently, Isaiah, a young man, at the very beginning of his ministry, is sent with these threats of judgment by God on this people. And to highlight the judgment, to assure the people of it, to make it stick in their minds, his his sermon to be memorable by them, Isaiah uses a phrase which he repeats throughout these opening chapters to describe the judgment that will come on Judah. The phrase is, in that day. And in chapters 1 to 4, he has used it six times. 
In chapter 2, verse 11, he says, The haughty looks of man shall be brought low in that day. In chapter 2, verse 12, The Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low. Two verse 17 he says, The haughtiness of man shall be humbled and the lofty pride of men shall be brought low and the Lord alone shall be exalted in that day. 2 verse 20, In that day mankind will cast away their idols of silver and their idols of gold. 3.18, In that day the Lord will take away the finery of the anklets. And then in verse 1, which we read of chapter 4, seven women shall take hold of one man in that day, saying, let us be called by your name. Here's his memorable phrase. He wants his message to be locked into the minds of his listeners. A day of devastation. A day when Jerusalem, the, the famous city, will be destroyed. A day when the people of Judah will be humiliated by exile in that day. A summary is given of the impending judgment in chapter 1 verse 7. Your country lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence foreigners devour your land. It is desolate as overthrown by foreigners. The exact date of that prophesied judgment has been identified by historians as the 16th of March, 597 BC. In that day. And we come then to verse 2 of chapter 4. The seventh time he uses the phrase, in that day. We're expecting more of the same. More condemnation, more dark threats, more judgment. Could you imagine listening to this prophecy sitting in the courtyard of Jerusalem, hearing the prophet? Proclaim the opening chapters of this book. Their hearts would sink. They would fear the worst. They would brace themselves for another beating from the prophetic word of Isaiah. But instead of a prophecy of judgment, we read a prophecy of grace and salvation in that day. The branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious. And perhaps you're asking, well, how, how is it then? How, how can these two phrases be combined? One of them announcing such dark, devastating judgment and the other announcing salvation and grace. Sometimes the prophetic writers combine these two dimensions. And here 
the prophet is doing this. He's announcing a, a day of intervention by God. And, and one revelation of that, expression of that, is in judgment. But there will also be an intervention of God that will be of grace and salvation. And so the promise of judgment and the promise of grace both belong to the Old Testament concept of the day of the Lord, the day when the Lord intervenes in a special and spectacular manner. And so E.J. Young, the professor of Old Testament in Westminster, writes, salvation and judgment go together and form the concept of the day of the Lord. How then does Isaiah describe the coming of salvation in this chapter? We're thinking of the picture of the branch, we're thinking of the person of the branch, and we'll think thirdly of the people of the branch. Think first of all of the, the picture of the branch. In that day, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious. The term branch means something a little different from what we would imagine it to mean at our first reading. We're not to understand the term to refer to a strong arm of a tree protruding from a tree trunk, a foot thick on which we might swing, climb, or sit, or cut down for firewood. But we're to understand this term, this word, as referring to a little twig, a tender shoot, the branch of the Lord. A shoot that emerges from a stump of a cut down tree. The tree has been felled or it has rotten and fallen over. And all that remains of the tree is a stump. Its former glory composed of its thick branches, abundant fruit, lofty height and balanced shape has gone. The tree has been burned by mar mar marauders felled by lumberjacks, or rotted by disease. And all that remains is an unattractive, unnoticeable, lowly, humble stump in the ground, easily bypassed, frequently ignored. But from this lowly stump, new life emerges in the form of a shoot, of a branch growing up and bearing fruit. What a promise this is. After those six announcements of judgment, in that day, judgment will fall. But also in that day, in this intervention by God, in a stupendous and spectacular manner, there's a promise of life and salvation. The branch of the Lord shall be beautiful. Judah will go into exile. They will be felled by the might of the Babylonians in 597 BC. They will be humbled. Their temple will be burned. Their cities will be destroyed. They will be taken captives. Their former glory and power will be lost. They will be left like an ignoble, dishonorable, base, contemptible, despicable stump of a tree. But a branch, a shoot, twig will emerge from the ruins of this nation. It's a word of hope and salvation and restoration. So what does it mean 
What is this branch that's been referred to? Who or what is represented by the twig, the shoot? The general meaning is that there is hope, as we've said, for the Jews of Judah who will be exiled in Babylon. It's a promise that as a nation they will not be totally extinguished. From the stump of their humiliation and exile will come a remnant who will continue in the Lord's way. The branch of the Lord will be beautiful. Though the nation of Israel is on the canvas, felled by the Babylonians, a defeated and exiled people, their nation will survive. How gracious their God is and our God is that he does not completely destroy this people who have sinned so deeply against him. They deserve to be lost among the Babylonians and never seen again. They deserve to be assimilated into that vast nation and forgotten. But they will be preserved. They will return to their land in that day. The branch of the Lord, the shoot, the twig, the surviving remnant will be glorious. But the reference here is more specific than the nation. It's a reference fully and ultimately to a person who will emerge from this humiliated nation. That person, of course, is Jesus. He will come from the line of Judah, from the house of David. And this understanding of branch is confirmed by the other uses of this image of branch among the prophets. In Jeremiah 23 verse 5 we read, I will raise up for David a righteous branch and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and this is the name by which he will be called the Lord our righteousness. In Jeremiah 33 verse 15 I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David. Zechariah 3 verse 8, Behold, I will bring my servant the branch. Zechariah 6 verse 12, Behold, the man whose name is the branch, he will build the temple of the Lord. And so this understanding of this image is, is not just of the, the nation broadly but of one individual from the line of Judah in particular the Lord Jesus Christ a similar description of him is given of course in chapter 53 of Isaiah and in verse 2 he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. And that well-known prophecy applied to Jesus confirms our understanding of this verse. The branch of the Lord, the twig, the shoot sprouting up from the decayed stump of the tree is Jesus coming in human form from the line of David. And so he came when the people of Israel were in a lowly place, just a stump, governed by the Romans. He entered a poor, lowly, insignificant family, the branch of the Lord. The picture 
of the branch. Last week in the Saturday Times magazine, a celebrity who had lost three stone at the age of 58, a challenge for, for some of us, he admitted that his weight loss was motivated not merely by health reasons, but by his desire for people to notice his physique. He craved the attention of the room. But here is Jesus taking a place of humiliation. The branch, the twig, the tender shoot of the Lord. This prophecy provides great hope for hopeless situations, a person or circumstance that appears a lost cause by the power and grace of God can be transformed. God can revive people devastated by sin who have reaped the consequences of their rejection of God, their life just like a stump, lowly, humbled, can be transformed. Perhaps people come to mind They were once glorious, influential, popular, well-known, but now they're despised and they're weak and they're ignored and they're hopeless. Perhaps they had powerful jobs, were invited to the significant parties within the province, were often in the papers, but by alcohol, gambling, fraud, they've fallen from grace so heavily. God can transform Such a case. Let us not give up on seemingly lost causes. What a message to Isaiah and to us. This is our God. He doesn't walk away and start again and choose some other nation to work with, muttering that they have had their chance. But he remains faithful to his chosen people, even though they are just a stump. Let us not give up on the alcoholic in our family who's destroyed his marriage and body or the drug addict or the gambler. Let us not give up on the family member who has stopped attending church. Let us not give up on our neighbor who claims to be an atheist. By the power of God, a living shoot can emerge from the humbled, felled, rotten stump of a person's life. Let us be willing to enter humble situations to help the needy. Jesus, the sustainer of the three billion trees in the UK at this time, humbled himself to become like a twig for us. And sometimes we need to humble ourselves intellectually and get down to the level of others to explain what to us is simple in order to help them. The times tables are beneath us intellectually now, but for the benefit of our children, we will help them learn them. Sometimes we need to humble ourselves emotionally and take an interest and an enthusiasm in areas that we're not naturally interested in to befriend and help others in our life and family and congregation. I read Elon Musk's biography over the holidays. 
And one of the sad features was the disconnect he had with his father. His father had no interest in computers and sought to dissuade his son from having any interest in computers. But here is Jesus, humbling himself, coming into this world, taking on our humanity, taking on the lowly place, the branch of the Lord. The picture of the branch. Secondly, the person of the branch. The branch of the Lord, and and see the text here, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. The two phrases in, in this second verse, the branch of the Lord and the fruit of the land are parallel. And when this occurs, the second phrase usually adds something to the previous phrase. It's much more in Hebrew parallelism than emphasizing the first point. It's moving the point on. And the two phrases which are used here, off the land and off the Lord, seem to allude to the two natures of the person who will come. He will be off the Lord and he will be off the land. He will be God of the Lord. He will be truly human of the land. He will be from heaven. He will be from earth. E.J. Young asks the question, is it then going too far to say that the phrase, the sprout or the branch of the Lord points to the deity of the Messiah and the phrase fruit of the earth or fruit of the land points to his humanity? He answers, it is not. Albert Barnes rejects this idea, but the other references to the two natures of Jesus in Isaiah that we've noticed in chapter 7 and chapter 9 support this idea. The branch of the Lord, the sprout, the twig that emerges from the stump has been sent by the Lord, formed by the Lord, provided by the Lord. And subsequent mentions of the branch in the prophetic books The emphasis is on God sending the branch, on the branch being the Lord. Far more is included than God calling and commissioning the branch as he did with Isaiah in chapter 6. The genitive of means connected to God, raised by God, of the very nature of God, belonging to God, out of God. So Jeremiah 23, 5 says, The name by which the branch will be called is the Lord, our righteousness. But he's also of the earth, of the land, the text says. The fruit of the land. And it's an expression, it's an expression which is perhaps unusual to us. But it's used and rooted in the Old Testament. Numbers 13, 26 that the spies showed the people of Israel the fruit of the land. Deuteronomy 1.25, the spies took in their hands some of the fruit of the land and brought it down to the people of God on the edge of the promised land. And here is the branch of the Lord, who is the fruit of the land. 
the land of Palestine, the land of Israel, the promised land in which the people who are hearing this prophecy are living and in which Isaiah, who's delivering the prophecy, is standing, the Messiah, the branch, he will be a Jew. He will come from a family living in Palestine, the fruit of the land. And he's described in two ways here, beautiful and glorious. The metaphor of branch, of twig, of shoot, indicates insignificance, lowliness, humility, easily bypassed, ridiculed perhaps, unnoticed, just a branch, just a twig, just a shoot, seemingly insignificant, but not to the people of God. He shall be beautiful and glorious. Not a tree, small, thin, Weak and yet beautiful and glorious, full of life, full of hope, full of salvation and grace. The branch of the Lord shall be beautiful. The phrase is used by David of Jonathan and Saul in his lament in 2 Samuel 1.19. As he thought of them in battle. As he remembered their character, beautiful, in their, their ways and in their abilities. And here it's used of Jesus. He shall be beautiful in his life, in his personality, in his mind, in his speech, in his ways, in his work, in his redemption. He shall be beautiful, though seemingly insignificant, lowly, despised, just a shoot. Yet he will be beautiful. And glorious. It's a wonderful contrast, and you can look at this uh, l- later on. At the end of chapter 3, uh, the, the writer, uh, the prophet, uh, is describing the beauty which is prized uh, by the people of his time from verse 16 uh, to, to the end. Uh, and he describes that it's an external beauty in verses 18 uh, to, to 23. The anklets, the headbands, the crescents, the pendants, the bracelets, the scarves, the headdresses, the armlets, the sashes, the perfume boxes, the amulets, the signet rings, the nose rings, the festal robes, the mantles, the cloaks, the handbags, the mirrors, the linen garments, the turbans, the veils. That's where their beauty was. In external things, in jewellery, in clothes, in appearance. That was the beauty they prized. But there will come a time when they will see in the lowly lowly twig one who is beautiful. Revealing the character of God. Showing works of compassion and redemption. There is a beauty which they hadn't known in their experience but now they see. Revealed in the Savior. $50 billion is spent by Americans over a year on cosmetic products. They value their beauty. 
But let us delight in the beauty of Christ and his work and his character and his ways, the branch of the Lord. And the delight of, of the people here is, is highlighted, isn't it, in the, in the words that are used in verse 2. He shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel, of the remnant, of the, the godly. They had pride, and we've read of this in chapter 2. A pride in themselves. A pride that because they belong to the chosen people, they will never be exiled. A pride in, in their own ways and in their own achievements. But this will be transferred. This will be refined. This will be shifted from looking inwardly in self-reliance to a pride in Jesus. He shall be the pride of God's people. They will be proud of him. They will be pleased with him. They will rejoice in his merits, his character, his works. They will be unashamed of him in their street, in their neighborhood, among their peers. He will be their pride and honor. They sought honor in other things as the opening chapters indicate and, and you can read there. But their honor will be shifted now. They will rejoice that they are connected to Jesus, that he will come from their nation, that they belong to him. Isn't this what we term regeneration? This transformation in our minds, in our emotions, in our love, in our priorities. They had a beauty that was external, that was visible, that was tangible in their garments, in their ornaments. And there's a place for that. But their supreme beauty now is changed to the beauty in Jesus and the worth and virtue of his being. Isn't this what we call regeneration of being born again? Of our emotions, of our interests, of our understanding, of our priorities being transformed by the Spirit of God. And Jesus teaches us that unless we are born again, we will not enter the kingdom of God. It challenges our time to value true beauty in our society, to come to church here and perhaps see in a brother, in a sister, the beauty of Jesus shining out of someone who has absolutely no idea what the latest fashion is. Because our understanding of real beauty is likeness to Jesus, not conformity to fashionable trends. The picture of the branch, the person of the branch, and lastly, the people of the branch, the rest of the prophecy of the chapter is describing the people, this connection to this one who comes in a lowly fashion, but he transforms all who trust in him. We read this evening from Romans chapter 8, a description of God's people. And in the rest of this chapter, we would almost think we are in Romans chapter 8 as God's people are described here in terms which overflow into the New Testament. They are chosen in verse number 3. Everyone has been recorded for life. It was common in a city to write down the inhabitants of that city. 
The Babylonians, they had a a book of all who were living in their cities. D.J. Young argues that the life referred to here is eternal life. Everyone written down for life. Those who had eternal life or those who will have eternal life in the coming centuries. He writes in these words, the doctrine of predestination is stated in figurative language. Everyone recorded for life. They're not only chosen, they're cleansed. In, verse, in the verses at number four, the Lord has washed away the filth of the people. The Spirit, perhaps referring to the Holy Spirit in verse number four of judgment and of burning, has refined the people and cleansing has come to them and forgiveness is theirs. The ensuing result is that they will be called those who are holy in verse number three. Because they are holy, others looking on at them will see that they are separate to God, a people devoted to him. And God will dwell among them by the cloud of smoke and shining. The canopy of marriage, of union between Christ and his people will be their experience. A chosen people, a cleansed people, a people who are holy, a people among whom God dwells. Gabby Logan's dad played for Spurs. He ended his career playing in Canada and he went ahead of the family before they they moved out and he was to organize the house and this, Gabby Logan indicates, was probably not a very good move. It was her mom who was more into property development and so on but dad had to go and he did organize the house and they drove up to this incredible mansion as a family and she remembers the moment when her dad got out the, the contract and realized that what he thought he would be paying for a year was actually what he would be paying for a month. And they they lived on a shoestring for all the time they were out in Canada, but in a nice house. And many people misread the Bible and its definition of God's people. They think that good works and kindness and neighborliness qualifies them to be the people of God. But here it is here. It's those who are chosen by God. It's those who are forgiven by God. It's those who are enabled by his spirit to live and be called and recognized and seen to be holy. It's those among whom God dwells in his grace. The person of the branch, the picture of the branch, the people of the branch. A branch. Just a twig. Just a shoot. A little branch. But Jesus is not that now. Babe in the manger is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. The little, thin, weak shoot 
has grown into a mighty tree. The General Sherman tree is the largest tree in the world at 52,000 cubic feet. But that tree was once a little twig. And so Jesus, once a shoot, is now exalted with all power and glory. And the experience of Jesus is to be the experience of all his people. Tonight, at the start of this new year, many of us feel inadequate. We anticipate the responsibilities, the duties, the demands, the problems that will come our way. We feel our weakness, our vulnerability, and our prayer is that our experience will be that of Jesus, that the twig will grow. That it will become stronger and more rooted and fruitful as this year progresses. And that by his grace, we will be kept and serve him who came from heaven to serve us.